Please take your Bibles and open it with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If I were to ask you this morning, what do you think is the biggest threat to the church today? How would you answer that question? What is the biggest threat to the church today? Some may say false doctrine, false Christians in the church, or worldly Christians in the church. Perhaps it's consumerism, materialism, maybe even sin plaguing the church. Satan, all these are good responses, good answers to really what is the biggest threat to the church. Jim Hamilton, he's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He sought to answer that very question as well. And how he answered that, what is the biggest threat to the church today? And he said, in our day, it very, very well may come from well-meaning pastors, well-meaning pastors, do they deny the truth? No. They don't deny the truth. But he says that they are a threat because in spite of their confession, their words and their actions treat Christianity as nothing more than the best form of therapy. They treat it as self-help. They treat it as the path to better marriages, better parent-child relationships, better attitudes and performance at work and so on and so on. His point is being is that they take Christianity, the message of Christianity, and they've really watered it down and and serve it as some sort of platter of therapy. You're struggling here? Here, just take this. There's a verse that speaks to that. They've watered it down completely. What do you even think about for yourself? I don't know on social media, if you're on social media, but if you notice the videos of preachers that get the most likes, that have gone viral, are always the pastors. It seems like most often the ones that are speaking of just the kind of the hot button topics of society, the ones that are speaking about self-love, overcoming your enemies, unlocking the power within, like all those are, yes, hot button issues. Yes, that's what I need. That's what I'm dealing with. Yes, that pastor's real. He gets it. Let's share, 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 like, subscribe. People marvel at it. And it always irks me, man. Whenever there's an issue in the media, it seems like the news anchors always get the pastors with just the weakest theology. It's like these pastors and preachers on TV responding to some tragedy or some issue within society. And these, these pastors who are supposed to be a spokesman for God sit there and give some just weak response to some real issues that people are facing. It's not only at the level of pastors. It is very easy for a Christian who sees needs and real hurts in the world and then run to other solutions other than Jesus. We see real issues and people run to everything else but Jesus. Is Christ enough? Is he enough? When we ignore God's ordinary means that he's provided for us, you know what happens at that point? If you run from the means that God has provided for his people, do you know what happens? We ignore God's means, and then what do we do? We flock to people. 
this person speaks truth for me. Even this pastor is who I have to listen to. I got to find this or that person because he is now the source of my truth. That's what's happening at Corinth in this church in Corinth. As Paul, he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. He received multiple reports about division in the church, immorality in the church, chaotic worship, and so forth. And now we're in the middle of this letter in chapter 2. And within the first chapters, the four chapters of this book, the main issue that Paul is addressing is disunity in the church. There's disunity in the church. If you recall, right, that there's some who are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Jesus, right? There's divisions here that they're flocking to what? Not the message, they're flocking to people. Why? Because they've lost the core of the message. They're flocking to people. And notice what Paul does not do in this debacle here. He does not highlight the right person to follow. He says, he does not say, okay, there's different divisions. Now follow Apollos. You know, Apollos was faithful. No, no, follow me, guys. Like I'm the one, I I was ascended up to the third heaven. Follow me. I I got it right. Christ, he appeared to me. I, I know it's right. I'm preaching the word. Follow me. He does not respond to that by saying, follow this person or that person. But rather he responds by pointing them to the right message to the right message. Because what he's done already before chapter two, if you flip back one chapter, he begins by addressing these issues by making sure that they understand the power of God and the gospel factually. And what do I mean by that? By making sure they understand the power of God and the gospel factually, that it is the core of their belief and their truth. Look what he says in chapter one, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That they must understand, we know, believers, that the message of the cross, it is foolishness to the world. But to us, we're being saved, it is the power of God. But even more, he moves on from that factually and he summons them by their own personal testimony. Because then he goes in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, Now consider your own calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. They knew that. Consider your calling. Think about your own self. Were there many wise? Were there many noble? Were there many mighty? But he says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world to despise, and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. In other words, you know for your own self, Corinthians, there, was, there weren't many noble people within you, but God chose the foolish things. Those who the world would see like, oh, him? God chose the base things, right? And what's the purpose in all this? So that, he says, no one may boast before God. So it's not about men, not about flesh. And so now moving past that now, he now begins by proving that his own actions, even his own preaching, that he exemplified this. That not only is the gospel the core of our power, and not only that, but you experienced it. And now he's saying here, when you saw me, Corinthians, I live that. I believe that. And how do do you know I believe that? Because you saw me preaching. And what did I preach? 
Did I try to preach my own wisdom? Did I try to preach my own power? No, 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 no. Rather, I relied upon the power of God. That even his own ministry, he demonstrated that his faith was anchored in the power of the gospel message. Look what he says in our passage now in chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I did determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I realize the irony of this message and the fact that the heart of its application really hits home with with me first. He's basically speaking to him as a preacher, that where does the power reside? What are your techniques? What are your methods? What do you really believe? Because that will manifest in what you preach and in how you preach. This really hits home the pulpit first. But we must also know that for you, believers, accept nothing else, accept nothing else in this pulpit and hold us accountable to it. But even more, it's essential for us to understand where the true power and where true lasting change happens. You've got to understand that. Where does true power, true lasting change happen? Where does it come from? Where is our power as believers? So I wanted to answer that. We wanted to draw out kind of three essential ingredients in life-changing preaching. Three essential ingredients in life-changing preaching. And really the the result of that is if you understand that, that if we understand these ingredients, what it does is it increases your appetite for God. Once you understand the power that God has intricately woven into the church and into preaching, it really does increase your appetite for God so that you want nothing else but God and his means of seeing and knowing him that your appetite should increase, your trust should should deepen, that your love for this God should be deepened in this truth. So let's draw out these three essential ingredients for life-changing preaching that should increase your appetite for God. Because remember now, the danger is not only for the preacher, but even for the people. Just keep in mind, what do we just read about? That that not only is there concern that there are preachers who are going to preach garbage, but even more, they're going to be people who want garbage. He says their, their ears, they're going to want to hear this garbage. That they're going to say, I want nothing more than this. They're going to develop a taste for this garbage. And even more, they're going to start demanding it from their pulpit. Whether they demand it audibly by saying, no, you should preach this. Why don't you preach that way? You know, this preacher down the street, he's, he used to preach like this. The preacher growing up preached like this way. That, you know, you should just think about that. Let me just send you this just to think about it. Just, just watch it. <laughs> they're going to demand it or they're going to demand it with their feet. They're just going to walk away. They're going to find a preacher who gives them what they want. How many people have even come in and out of this church because vain reasons. They didn't get what they wanted. They had a taste for garbage that happens everywhere. 
So we must look at what is the first ingredient then for life-changing preaching. The first ingredient is it must proclaim the right message. Preaching must proclaim the right message. You see this in the first two verses. Paul visited Corinth during his second missionary journey. It's recorded in Acts chapter 18, if you want to look at it later. And he made his home with with two Jewish exiles there, with Priscilla and Aquila. Now here in this passage, he provides his own testimony of how Paul, essentially how he lived, what he preached. And the crux of his preaching was this. What does he say in verse 1 and 2? And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That when I came to you, brethren, you saw that all I sought to know, all I determined to know, I set my mind to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I want you to think about your own conversion. Think about your own testimony. When God saved you, did he save you because of your intellect? Did he save you because of your wisdom? Did he save you because of your likable disposition? Did he save you because you were generally a a nice person growing up and you just needed a little bit of help? (laughs) Is that why he saved you? No. I mean, if, if anything, those things get in the way of our salvation. Because when we rely on our intellect and our wisdom and our likability, how much does that impede our need of Christ? He saved you in spite of all of those good things, quote unquote, that they get in the way. And that's why Paul, before this passage in verse 31 of chapter one, he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The point is so that when he saves you, you boast where? In the Lord. And that's why Paul's message is to preach Christ and him crucified. Let's step back and ask, like, why is this even necessary? Why is it, this assertion necessary? Why is he pointing out what would hopefully be the obvious, that you preach Christ and Christ crucified? I hope so. <laughs> Christ called you, what else would you preach? Why is it even necessary for him to point out to these Corinthians that when I was among you, I preached Christ and him crucified? Of course you'd preach this. Well, that was not always the case. At this time, you know, Corinth was a diverse city. It was a popular city. People came in and out of the city. It was near the water. So you got plenty of people coming in and out, varying cultures within. It's a diverse city. It's almost maybe like equivalent of, of a Los Angeles kind of, like a popular city. People go there for many different reasons. Wealth coming in and out. You have different philosophies and ideologies all mixed within it. And you have all these kind of backgrounds in it. And what was happening at this point is that kind of the the Hellenized, the the Greek-influenced culture of that time really rubbed off on the church. That people who are so influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek culture, it began to rub off on the church. Now, in what way did that rub off? Is that a bad thing? Because you think about it, culture impacts churches, our church, right? There's certain things we do because of our culture. It's not necessarily biblical, but culture, a lot of times, just rubs off. Not always in bad ways, but other times culture can rub off and influence the philosophy of ministry, and that is bad. And that's what was happening here in Corinth, because that Hellenized Greek culture rubbed off in the church in the sense that they wanted speakers 
who were like the orators of that day. They wanted pastors and preachers who were speaking like the popular philosophers of that time. You think of all those before that time, but you think of like, they wanted like a new Aristotle. Like who's our new Plato? Who's coming up with these, this, this sharp wisdom, these sharp teachings. Who's, who, who is that of this day? That's what, they, that's what they wanted. They wanted preachers who sounded like those great orators of their day. But Paul says, you know, I did not come with, he says, superior speech. In other words, referring to someone who wants to come off as this high-class individual and one who wants to sound wise. I didn't come to you with that superior speech. I didn't come acting, if I may, acting bougie, right? Like he, that's, that's not what I did. It says he also refused wisdom. This is not the kind of, of good wisdom, but he says referring to, to worldly cleverness. I didn't come with the superiority of speech or this worldly cleverness in speaking that comes from the world. At this time, the orators in this culture, the orators in this culture had similar approaches to, I think, politics of our day. The orators, they would come into cities and they would come and in order for them to get a following, what they would do is they would start speaking and present their teachings. And people would hear their speaking and hear their speeches. And they would begin to flock to these people, right? Not the message, really. They flocked to these people. And why would they flock to them? Wow, he speaks well. What was, oh, he's, he's saying this. Yeah, I can resonate with that. Yeah, oh, I like him. Let me flock to him. Oh, look what he's saying. Oh, that's, that's deep. They would flock to them. And even so, that even some of the, the philosophers of that day or the historians of that day, like Thucydides, they were even commenting upon the time where, where they noticed how these orators were coming to cities and people would flock to them. And the problem that these historians had with these orators is not that they were actually helping people or, or, or maneuvering change, but the fact that they were drawing people through their deceitful cleverness and people were following them. And even the secular, non-believing historians saw this and refuted it in their day. That people were going to these people and flocking to them because of what they're saying. And Paul's saying here, I'm not coming here with superior speech or wisdom. I didn't come here with all of that. I mean, you think about it even in our day. Do you remember when presidential debates actually involved discussions with substance and intelligence? Like, remember those days? Like long, long ago, right? Because it's, now it's about maybe the opponent who can belittle the other opponent the best way. It's the one who can come up with the best slogan that draws people. And sadly, people follow, just like in this time, in our day now, people often follow the gifted speaker rather than the qualified candidate. And how does that gifted speaker get a following? They come up with good slogans that draws people. And really, it's deceitful because their slogans do not really promise what they're trying to say they'll promise. How many times are people cleaving to now even the whole phrase, equality for all? Like, oh, I like that. Yes. So much oppression. Equality, finally. That's what we need. Let's fall. Yes, I'm on board with them. Why don't you read the fine, fine print? <laughs> Ain't going to be no equality for everybody. My body, my choice. Yes, I, he gets it. He gets it. My body, my choice. That's what it's about. No, it's not about that. Slogans that come up with an agenda that's really masked with deception so that people follow them. 
The, all these phrases, even, I'm not, let, let's hit the whole spectrum. Make America great again. I'm not refuting that, but I'm saying people are flocking to slogans and they're following people because what they're saying perks their ears. Listen to the message instead. Paul realized the deception in that, that you can't follow men. Men will lead you astray. So Paul's saying here, I didn't come here with phrases. I didn't come here with slogans. I came here with one message, Christ and him crucified. That's the message, that Paul refused human methods and human wisdom. Now, keep in mind, Paul could have. He could have used philosophy. Paul was well-versed. He was an educated man. He could have used philosophies and philosophers and ideologies. He could have used all of that, but he refused to employ them because he realized that they were ultimately powerless to save and powerless to sanctify. That the message is in Christ and him crucified. That a savior came to die on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for man. He came to save and to seek, to seek and to save that which was lost. That that message alone is what changes lives. It's not with some sort of clever slogan or speech, but the message of who Christ is. He came to seek and to save changes. So Paul denies, he uses no sticks, no gimmicks. He didn't try to accompany the message of Christ with something to make it more palatable to the human ear. Now, we realize that there will hardly be a church that will deny this theoretically. I want you to hear me. There's going to be hardly a church that will deny this theoretically. You'll see it on probably almost every doctrinal statement that they believe Christ crucified. He died on the cross, so forth. Churches don't often deny this theoretically. But does the rubber meet the road in practice? Does the rubber meet the road in practice? In other words, is the cross sufficient for teaching in regards to life and godliness? They say they believe in the cross, that it happened historically. But is the cross the means to sanctifying power for God's people today? Is the cross proclaimed from the pulpit? Is the cross what the people are clinging to because they realize that the true power comes from Christ and him crucified? And I think what's happening now, the church is now seeing how it's, it's failed in many ways to accurately handle the real issues of life. I think that's happening a lot now. Maybe it's happened in generations past. I need to look in that historically. But I, I think now at this point, you're seeing many churches who are now seeing that. They'll say this. They'll package it this way. You know, the church really hasn't done a good job in, 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 in really loving and proclaiming Christ's love to the people, to the world. Because what people really need to see is, you know, just how loving God is. The church hasn't done a good job in X, Y, Z. And they're really just trying to make up for the faults of their own pulpit. Like what's happening here is that they have no idea how to respond to issues of mental illness, to social movements, to addiction that is plaguing the church, plaguing the world. And if I dare to say, the reason is not because the church has done a good job per se, but the reason is because what's happened historically is the church has abandoned the word of God. I mean, think even historically that eventually when liberalism creeped into the church, what would happen? that people started to doubt the sufficiency of God's word. They started to doubt the sufficiency of just the gospel in saving lives. 
So when liberalism creeped into the church, people doubted God's word, God's power. And then so what happened from that? They begin to compromise God's word. Since God's word is no longer inerrant, it's no longer infallible. It's no, they'll say it's infallible, but they don't really believe it. But it's no longer inerrant. What happens now? They compromise it. They say, well, let's bring in some of these other secular ideologies into the church. We have to incorporate more inclusive thing to help body, soul, and mind. We just need more inclusivity to address these real issues. They've neglected the basic truths, and so therefore now this real issue comes in. How do we actually do stuff? Let's look at what, what does Alfred have to say? What does Sigmund Freud have to say? What is, well, not Sigmund Freud, but what, what does Freud have to say? What does all these other, maybe even Sigmund Freud, who knows at this point? They'll go to anyone. <laughs> so they go to all these other philosophers. Let's bring this in. And so now you have gospel weakness. And now what's happening now is that there are no true conversions happening in many churches because they're not getting Christ and him crucified. And so now there's no conversions. You have powerless lives. So how did we get here? Because you have many preachers who came in to want to see and to speak with superiority of wisdom and speech who want to bring clever wisdom into the pulpit, and they neglected the right message, Christ and Christ crucified. That Christ is the power for a changed life. Christ is the one who bled and died. Christ is the one who bore the wrath of God. Christ is the one who was buried. Christ is the one who was raised. Christ is the one who was ascended. Christ is the one who's in the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now. Christ is the one with power you get that message wrong, no wonder why you have so many weak, weak churches. Now we say we believe this message is sufficient, and yet we will do everything but preach this message in a worship service. And not even just in a worship service, just even in life. How much do we truly trust the message that Christ died for sinners? How many church staff meetings before Easter along the lines of, okay, we have Easter coming up. We're going to expect twice as many in attendance. We have so many people coming. So many need people to hear about Jesus. So many people need to hear about God of love. So many people are going to come. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Let's let's preach the gospel. No, 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 no. We need something to attract them in. I got it. Okay. We're going to have a play. And in this play, no, we're still going to tell the resurrection. Like Christ, we're going to still talk about that. But how about... We do it with the back theme of the Lion King. And in the Lion King, like they'll see the Lion King and it's kind of have some analogies and they can connect with that and the kids can see it. And maybe the neighbor who's, who's not really on to Christianity, this will, this will bring them in. And so we'll have the Lion King montage in there and we'll tell the resurrection story in it and then they'll see it and they'll see how beautiful it is. And that'll be it. How, how about we run with that? Now we're laughing about that but I literally saw a video on that this past year about a church who did that. That's how sad it is. That there's no power in this worldly wisdom. We believe this, but how much do we abandon this in our practice? How much do you rely upon this message to change your life? How much is this message informing your Christian life now? How much is Christ crucified sufficient for you? Obviously, this doesn't mean that he only preached the cross, because later in verse 6, he says that we, we do speak wisdom. He's not, he's not neglecting that. We do speak truth, other truth, all in Scripture, but he says it's God's wisdom. It's God's teaching. 
what he's basically saying here is we're not going to, to secular or worldly means to preach truth in order to, to tickle the ear. He's not relying on any human, humanly clever ways or tactics to convey this capital T truth. He's relying upon that message. In other words, Christ is enough. He proclaimed the right message as essential. It's so essential and yet so easily neglected. Do we believe Christ is enough? Is Christ enough? A second ingredient here is that you must rely on the right means. You must rely on the right means. If you get that first ingredient right, that the right message, that it impacts the manner of how you proclaim that message. If you understand the right message, then it impacts the manner in which you proclaim that message. What do I mean by that? Let me ask you this. When you approach the word of God, whether in your devotions, when you come to church, Bible study, when you approach the word of God, what is your objective? Why are you reading the word of God? Why are you coming to God's word? I would hope it would be to see Christ. You want to see Christ. Now, how do you see Christ? You must understand this word. You must be illumined by this word. How are you illumined by this word? How do you understand it so that it actually makes an impact on your life? How do you understand it? Through the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. I think we can connect that logically, but understand here, if we must go to God's word, why? To see Christ, to behold Christ, be changed by Christ. How does that happen? I must understand it, and how do I understand it truly? The Holy Spirit must work upon his word to change me, to open my eyes so that I can rightly see and understand God's word. The Holy Spirit. If that is true, then our superior objective in not only proclaiming the word of God, but even understanding the word of God, is clarity, not persuasion. Our superior objective is clarity and not persuasion. Don't get me wrong now. It's not wrong to persuade. I'm trying to persuade you right now. It's not wrong to persuade. I'm saying the superior objective is clarity because I realize it's not about how well I can persuade, but it's about how clear to convey the truth so that the spirit of God can work upon the soul of man. So we believe in the Holy Spirit. We want to persuade people, but the, the difference is we realize that the spirit moves upon his word and not our human technique to be smooth. It's the spirit of God. Look at verse four. He says that in my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. He says it's not in persuasive words of wisdom. It's actually the only time this whole phrase is used in the New Testament. I like the way John Calvin defines this persuasive words of wisdom. He says that these words are that they strive rather by cunning deceit than by truth. And also an appearance of refinement that allures the minds of men. That it appears, it, it, this is cunning to see, and it allures the mind. That that's what that persuasive words of wisdom is about. About alluring the mind. Oh, that, that sounds good. That sounds nice. That sounds, yeah, I, I can agree to that. I remember even seeing 
one person talk about Jesus, and of course, they had an agenda behind it. Their agenda was not truth. Their agenda was to get their own agenda, and they described Jesus. They said that Jesus was a homeless Palestinian hippie trying to overturn a patriarchal capitalistic society. Like, that's what Jesus was. And we can chuckle and laugh at that, but how many people are like, amen, yes, you get it, that's it. We find, yes, that's what it's about. Jesus is doing the same thing we're trying to do now. He was a Palestinian homeless hippie just trying to overturn a patriarchal uh, capitalistic society. That's what Jesus, that's the kind of Jesus I'm about. But you see what it is? It's, it's deceit. It's cunning deceit. It's alluring our mind, and we're trying to follow it. We are following it because it sounds nice. That, that's the kind of persuasive words of wisdom Paul's talking about here, that it sounds really uh, appealing and attractive, but really it's deceitful and it's not grounded in truth. And yet many, many people are getting on that ship because it's about persuasive words of wisdom. Now, don't get me wrong, because even though it's persuasive words of wisdom, what Paul is saying here, he's, he's not trying to, he's not saying it's wrong to proclaim and to preach the word. Because look at the verb he uses. He says in verse 4 that proclaiming my message and my preaching, in other words, my proclamation, were not in persuasive words of wisdom. He uses the verb here, proclaiming. It's not a gentle word. It's along the lines of announcing. Even elsewhere in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, when Paul is saying here to preach the word, he's using keruso, in other words, to proclaim aloud. That he aims to impact the heart. And hear me on that, that he wants to preach. He wants to preach boldly. He wants to preach proudly in, in the name of Christ, but he's not speaking to the intensity of his, he's speaking more to the intensity of speaking, excuse me, he's not speaking to the intensity of his speak, of preaching, but the technique of it. I'm going to say that again. He's not speaking to the intensity of his speaking, but to the technique of it. In other words, my technique is not to be clever and cunning, but yet he is still preaching boldly. He's not in persuasive techniques to draw you like some sort of hypnosis. Like my, his, his goal is not just to draw you into him. Like, look what I just said. Now follow me. But he's seeking to preach in power. That he was announcing it, not as a wordsmith, trying to allure the mind. Rather, he was proclaiming the foolish message of the cross. And why is it foolish? Because the message of the cross is foolish to those who are lost. That those who do not know this message, they'll hear the message of the cross, and it is foolishness to their ears. Now, some may not even say it's, or may even audibly say it's foolish. They may not say it out loud. But really, how do we know the message of the cross is foolishness to that person? It's because they know that message, and that message still has not changed their life. It's foolishness still, by default. Even though you don't say it's foolishness, but what have you done with that message in life? Has that message changed you? The power ultimately does not lie in the vessel. So Paul's saying here, it's not in persuasive words of wisdom. I'm not proclaiming this message and my preaching. It's not by that technique. But look what he says else in verse four. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but how? But in demonstration of the what? The spirit and of power. So in other words, his message, right, that the content of his speaking, what he was speaking, and also his preaching, in other words, the proclamation of that very message was not persuasive words of wisdom, but he relied upon it. It was through demonstration of the spirit and through power. The means that he relied upon was the Holy Spirit, that he relied upon the Holy Spirit, 
not his own technique. He says specifically demonstration of the spirit. This word demonstration, it's used in a court of law. It's a legal term. It's actually a term that signified that proof or evidence that someone submits and that no one can refute it. If they were to submit some demonstration of proof, in other words, they would see that evidence and no one can refute it. It's a fact. It's almost like an eyewitness testimony in our day. No one can refute that. You got 10 eyewitnesses. I mean, that's, that's a demonstration of your case. Paul saying here, I'm not preaching in clever, human cleverness, but I'm preaching in demonstration and proof, undeniable proof of the power of the spirit. So in other words, when you see my preaching, you can tell it's not by any means of human technique, but you can see by proof that it's by the spirit and by power. And how can you see that proof? How do you see that proof? And he's speaking to Corinthians who heard him preach. How can they see that demonstration, that irrefutable proof? Because they saw conversion after conversion after conversion after conversion. That Paul went into Corinth and unbelievers, pagan worshipers, were now surrendering to Christ. He says it was in demonstration, irrefutable proof of the spirit and of power. That you saw that yourself. This power, although some say it refers to miracles, but it denotes that the hand of God just stretching his hand over the apostles' ministry. You saw this power come in and change lives. That's why he says in chapter 4 of this book, in verse 20, that the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Paul knows that. It's not about how well I can can, can put together my words. The kingdom of God that changes lives is about the power of God through the spirit of God changing lives. And that's why he says in our passage in verse 3 that I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Because when you realize that it's not about how well you can put together some sentences, when you realize that it is about the spirit of God moving upon the souls of men, when you realize that that's God's power, you're weak. It's not about your ability. You're in fear and trembling before God because you realize this is a weighty task that you cannot do. And so I do it on dependence of the spirit of God in fear and trembling before God to work his power in the souls of men. And Paul knew that. So he says he was in weakness. And by the way, I love how he used this term weakness because he used the term that his critics used against him, saying this, this, this guy's weak. And yet Paul is using it as his commendation. I came in weakness. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't strong. Even, even physically, I was weak. But you know what? It was in demonstration of power in the spirit because God was working in you. This weakness is a general sense of weakness here, which of course involved his physical weakness. But though Paul was unimpressive in size, he didn't try to make up for his physical shortcomings so that he would be more compelling. He trusted the message. He trusted the simple message with clarity. And how did that message prove itself? He says, demonstration, proof of the spirit and of power. It was God's working. I, w- I want you to see this briefly. Go to Acts chapter 17. This records Paul's dealings as he's, he's going from town to town. And what I wanted to point out here is as Paul is preaching in his ministry, obviously Paul's blessed by God. He's an apostle by God. And yet the demonstration and the power that Paul is talking about, it's not contingent upon his own will, but whose will? God's will, Right? 
Paul knew that it was God's power. And notice here, when he's in chapter 17, after the sermon on, uh, sermon on Mars Hill, the, the big sermon that Paul's known for when he's going through Athens, I notice here, you got many gods here, right? But I want to appeal, appeal to you to the unknown God. What a just compelling speech. I mean, it's used time after time in apologetics lessons, evangelistic lessons, to see how Paul really engaged with the, the, the godless mindset, with the pagan mindset. It's just an impeccable speech. And yet, at the end of the speech, look what he says in verse 32 of chapter 17. Now, when they heard, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, mm, we shall hear you again concerning this. It's like, eh, well, we'll see. Right? I mean, this is this, this amazing speech. What do they say? Meh. <laughs> Let me go listen to Aristotle on the street. I think that's his nephew. Let's go listen to him. They said they didn't really care much for it. And so Paul went out of their midst. Now it says there in 34 that some came to believe, but you see here the response to that message is they really didn't receive it. Again, it's not about Paul's power, right? Now look at the next chapter over, chapter 18, which is in Corinth, who Paul's writing to now in 1 Corinthians that we're reading. This is now Paul's account in Corinth. Now after these things, he left Athens and then went to Corinth. Let's scroll down in verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Man, that's trying to persuade, right? Again, there's nothing wrong with persuasion, but we know Paul's technique and his method. It's not upon his own wisdom. He's trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the right message. Right? He was persuading them, testifying that Christ is the Messiah. Verse 6, but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, by the way, I just love <laughs> Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is from start to finish. Like in the very beginning, like Paul was already exasperated. <laughs> like I'm done. <laughs> and even in his ministry, you can look at 2 Corinthians, you can tell Paul was about like up to here with the Corinthians, but by the grace of God, he strove with them. Paul here, realizing that, he said, okay, you know what? I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I'm done. But again, whose power are we talking about here? Whose power are we, we trusting in? Keep, let's keep reading. And then he left there, verse 7. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all, of it, with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So now you see fruit happening. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night, by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Where did the power come from? Paul proclaiming the same message from Athens, not getting the same response, and yet you see blessing and conversions in Corinth. Why? It was in demonstration proof of the power of the Spirit of God, because God is the one who was working and changing and converting souls. How? Through Paul's persuasion, through man's techniques, through the power of the gospel. That the only reason why he had conversions is he says, no, Paul, I know you're frustrated. They're not saying the same things yet, but keep going. I have many in this city. 
which speaks to our frustrations. There are many people in your lives now, you wish to come to the gospel of truth. Why can't they believe? I've shared the gospel with them time and time again. I've told them about Jesus. They've seen his, the change in my own life, but they still don't believe. Well, believer, can I encourage you in this? They're not going to believe by how well you live your life. They're not going to believe by how convincing you are in presenting them the gospel. Your only task, your only calling is to present to them with clarity the message of Christ and Christ crucified. And Christ in his own time, if he so wills, will convert their souls. And it will be proof that they came to Christ, not because you prodded them so many times, although you should. Not because how well you spoke, although it may have been good. But because they saw the proof of the power of the Spirit of God that opened their eyes. That that's the power here. That's where the power comes from. So be relentless. Have hope, believer. If that person you're praying for, keep praying and also keep giving them the good message of Christ crucified and trust God's timing. Trust his work. Now, how does this power work? This power, as we saw, First and foremost, it works, this power that Paul's talking about in the regeneration of sinners. I mean, think of Ephesians 2. You know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What made us alive? The power of God through the Spirit of God. He made us alive. Acts chapter 16, verse 14, when speaking of Lydia, she was a worshiper of God, it says, but not saved. But she was listening to the Paul. And the Lord, it says in verse 14 of Acts chapter 16, the Lord opened her heart to believe. It's it's the Lord that he opened her heart to believe. The role of the Holy Spirit chiefly and principally in the New Testament is to apply the work of Christ to believers. The Holy Spirit, his role is to apply the work of Christ to believers. And he empowers believers to live the Christian life. That we're living the Christian life because we've been saved by the power of God as the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and gave us life by God's power. But even more, believer, you are living the Christian life. How? By the power of God through the Holy Spirit. It's God's power. And it's through the ministry of the word. So, of course, we must use words to preach this message, right? Paul's not saying here, just don't worry about words, but he's saying here that the power is through the Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul's message here is with demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now realize our, our charismatic brothers and sisters, you know, they, they read that, that his message came with, with, with demonstration of the spirit and of power. Like they would read that and I'm like, yeah, amen and amen. Now that's what you frozen chosen are missing. The, the spirit and the power. Like that's what you're missing. You don't know anything about the power. You don't know anything about the spirit. You're missing that. But look here. You notice where that spirit and power is connected? How is it connected? It's connected to what? That spirit and power is connected to what? My preaching and my message. You cannot experience the spirit of God apart from the truth of God. It's not about some emotional technique to draw you into God's presence. Let's turn up the fog machines, turn down the lights, lift up your hands, and just cry. That's not where you get the, the, the truth. The power comes from the truth of God's word. It must be informed with God's truth. And he says, my preaching and what I was preaching, that's where the demonstration, the proof of God's power, changing, changing power was found. 
It was connected to the truth, the preaching of the word. We have to move on to the third ingredient. So not only relying upon the right means, the Holy Spirit of God, which works through the ministry of the word, the third ingredient here is you must leave the right mark. You must leave, preaching must leave the right mark. What do I mean by that? We're going to see in verse 5. Because what is the purpose of this kind of preaching? What's the purpose of this preaching? Well, abandoning, abandoning worldly wisdom, if you do abandon that, if you abandon worldly wisdom, you're also abandoning man's approval. The purpose is not to be puffed up, but to allow the spirit to not only work, but so that the men would rest on the very power that changed them. In other words, we abandon man's approval. I'm most concerned with the clarity and the truth of the word. Why? So that those who hear God's word would not trust in man, but would trust in the very power that is working in them. It must leave the right mark so that people, when they encounter the word of God, when you encounter the word of God, your strength, your faith, he says, should rest upon the power of God, not on man. Paul's preaching a message were in demonstration of the spirit and power, verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. They would hear the message and not marvel at Paul, but marvel at Christ. They would marvel at Christ's beauty. They would see Christ's power. They would see Christ's grace. They would see his righteousness. They would see his holiness. They would see his loveliness. They would see his beauty. They would see his, 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 all his attributes. And they would marvel at Christ because they see Christ so gloriously displayed in his word. And the spirit opened their eyes to see Christ more truly. And they loved this Christ even more. So now the mark that it leaves is I must rely and want this power even more. I want more of it. That my faith is increased by it. I want you to think about the job of a herald in the medieval times. The, the herald, it was, his job was strictly to deliver the message from the king to the people or to another country. Right? The herald had one job. Here's a message. Deliver it. Don't mess up that message. Right? You're just an ambassador. You got one job, herald. Proclaim that message. I mean, these heralds, even in that time, they, they, their job was such an intricate part of, of the family that they kind of been known, they were known to be a part of the family at some points. That this is just associated with the family of the king of blank. Like, oh, he's part of their family because he's, he knows the message. He, he's so intertwined with that message. And his job is just to convey that message as though the king were speaking or though the queen was speaking. That herald had an important job. Deliver that message from the mouth of the king through his mouth to these hearers. But I want you to think about now, in history, I want you to name, come bring into mind one famous herald of history. Just one. Think in your mind right now. One herald. Who is it? No one. There's not a herald. He's not a herald. There's no, her- there's no true herald of history that you can bring to mind. Do you know why you can't bring a true herald to your mind right now? Because the herald doesn't matter. It's not about the herald. Now, if I can ask you, bring up one king in your mind from history. Julius. I can, you can think of hundreds of kings from history. Why? Because whose reputation is known? The king, not the herald. And because it's the herald, this herald does not want them to remember me, the herald. The herald wants to remember the king. This is what the king said. And that's what Paul wants, to leave the right mark. So your faith would not rest upon the herald, but upon the God who gave the message. 
That's the mark of true preaching, that now your faith rests upon God because you realize this is God's word, not man's word, and it's God's spirit who applies it, God's spirit who changes you, and now I want more of this God. That's the spirit. That spirit-driven teaching results in drawing the heart Godward. And what is the result of that power? A changed life. A changed life. That this kind of preaching, it changes life. You experience the power of God so that your faith relies on God's power. Now, if this is true, obviously the disunity in, in the Corinth is resolved, right? If we're relying upon the Spirit, right? Who cares about who Paulus is and who Paul is and who, who, who all these other men are? As long as they're preaching Christ, I'll follow them, right? Because Paul's not saying it's wrong to follow a man, right? He says, imitate me as I follow Christ. But this would resolve any disunity because we're following, yes, as long as you are preaching the word, yes, I'm behind you, brother. I'm behind you, sister. As long as you're preaching that, I'm behind you. But we're not trusting in a herald. We're trusting in Christ. This is what Christ works to do in us. And as easy it is for us to understand this, like I said, it is hard to actually put into practice. It's hard to be faithful tilling the ground with our relatives, with our coworkers, with our children, with our neighbors, because we're so tempted. To, we just, I just want them to just be changed. Why can't they get this through their thick skull? But we must realize the power begins with God and it ends with God. So rather we must be faithful and trust God's power so that they would trust in the power that changed them. Their faith would be on God, not the herald. Believer, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you should be the hardest working evangelist by day and the hardest sleeper by night. You should proclaim with earnest this message of the gospel by day, the hardest worker. Yes, hear this. Christ came to save, save saviors. Hear this message. He can change you. Yes, I know he can. His word says he's promised it. Is his blood sufficient for the sacrifice for sins? Is he sufficient? Proclaim that till you turn black and blue. And when you go to bed, you can sleep soundly because you know it's God's power at work. Whether it's your children, your relatives, your neighbors, I don't care who it is. But rather, give the right message, trusting the right means, so that they rest on the right person, the Holy Spirit. Proclaim the right message, rely on the right means, leave the right mark. Charles Spurgeon said that the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of this preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. Men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning, otherwise it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we exhaust our lungs and die, and never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. So I ask again, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? If this gospel message is true, that it changes lives, that Christ is sufficient for every need, that Christ is all in all, that we have everything in Christ. What else can change you? What else, believer, my ass, has changed you? And by the way, if you have not been changed by this gospel message, I don't care if you've heard it, but if you have not been changed by this gospel message, if there is not a mark in your life that it's changed you, then you have not experienced the power of this gospel. 
You hear me? If you have not been changed by it, if it's not changed your life, that even even people can point to see there's something different within you. If there's no discernible, powerful change in your life, might I ask, have you been changed by the power that Christ was crucified for sins? Have you been changed? Have you experienced this power of God? Has it been placed upon your soul? Has the spirit opened your eyes to this truth? You've heard this. You've known this. But has it changed you? This is the power of the gospel. It changes lives, beloved. If you have not heard this and then believed this and been changed by this, Jesus says, now come unto me who are heavy laden and burdened. I will give you rest for your souls. That the true answer, the true need to your soul is Christ and Christ crucified. We need a sound theology. If this message is true, if this passage is true, we need a sound theology of regeneration. Of regeneration. What do I mean by that? That we have to understand what is it that changes lives. It is regeneration, or in other words, rebirth. That you must be born again. George Whitfield, Whitfield, a famous preacher, he would always preach, you must be born again. You must be born again. And at one point he was asked, George, why do you keep preaching you must be born again? He responded, because you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. It demands a sound theology. The only way to see true lasting change is through rebirth. If we abandon the gospel, we've abandoned change. That we must believe this. The Holy Spirit, a sound theology of the Holy Spirit demands we proclaim the word and that nothing but the word. And that we prayerfully and earnestly depend upon the spirit of God to move upon his word. And that we trust in nothing else to transform and to renew us other than the same power that renewed us. And this is our daily, our daily and ongoing reliance. That just as Paul says, this, this, this encounter with the word, so that your faith would rest upon God, not the wisdom of men. Then believer, even now, how much more do we need to rely and trust in the very power that saved us? How much are we tempted to run to other things to renew and to satisfy our soul other than the word of God? If you have seen Christ in his face, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it points out, if, if, if you have seen this God who once spoke, let there be light into the world, and he's also shown into your hearts the light of Christ. If you have seen this Christ, you must rely upon this Christ. That this power that saved you is the same power that renews you day by day by day. That's a good power. We can't run to nothing else. How much do we need the power of God in our lives? We fully believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. That the Holy Spirit is the one who changes and renews us. And we see his power working, his ministry working through the word of God. I need this word. You need this word. This ought to strengthen our love and our dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So that we not only believe that Christ and Christ crucified. We're trusting in Christ and Christ crucified. We're being changed by Christ and Christ crucified. Let's pray. Our God, we need this truth. We exalt in our Savior. Father, we exalt in your love that it's foreknown us. We exalt in your Son who has saved us. We exalt in the Spirit who applies it. We exalt in our God who is great. 
Father, may our boast be in nothing but Christ and Christ alone. That we would not only boast in it, Lord, but as it's designed to do, that boasting would cause us to trust in it, to cling to the cross, to cling to Christ. That we would love our Savior because your word says that you love us in Christ supremely more than anything else. And Lord, I know we are so tempted to doubt the love of Christ that is found in, the love of God that is found in Christ. So Lord, as we doubt your love even, may we see Christ and be fully satisfied in him. This is in his name we pray, amen.